This is Audible. Gildan Media presents Your Coach in a Box, affordable, life-changing audio programs. An unabridged recording of Fooled by Randomness. The Hidden Role of Chance in Life and in the Markets by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Narrated by Lloyd James. Preface Taking Knowledge Less Seriously. This book is the synthesis of, on one hand, the no-nonsense practitioner of uncertainty who spent his professional life trying to resist being fooled by randomness and trick the emotions associated with probabilistic outcomes, and on the other, the aesthetically obsessed, literature-loving human being willing to be fooled by any form of nonsense that is polished, refined, original, and tasteful. I am not capable of avoiding being the fool of randomness. What I can do is confine it to where it brings some aesthetic gratification. This comes straight from the gut. It is a personal essay primarily discussing its author's thoughts, struggles, and observations connected to the practice of risk-taking. Not exactly a treatise, and certainly, God forbid, not a piece of scientific reporting. It was written for fun, and it aims to be read, principally, for and with pleasure. Much has been written about our biases, acquired or genetic, in dealing with randomness over the past decade. The rules, while writing the first edition of this book, had been to avoid discussing a. anything I did not either personally witness on the topic or develop independently, and b. anything that I have not distilled well enough to be able to write on the subject with only the slightest effort. Everything that remotely felt like work, was out. I had to purge from the text passages that seemed to come from a trip to the library, including the scientific name-dropping. I tried to use no quote that did not naturally spring from my memory, and did not come from a writer whom I had intimately frequented over the years. I detest the practice of random use of borrowed wisdom. Much on that, later. As the saying goes, only when the words outperform silence. These rules remain intact, but sometimes life requires compromises. Under pressure from friends and readers, I have added to the present edition a series of non-intrusive endnotes referring to the related literature. I have also added new material to most chapters, most notably in Chapter 11, which altogether has resulted in an expansion of the book by more than a third. Adding to the Winner I hope to make this book organic, by, to use trader's lingo, adding to the winner, and let it reflect my personal evolution, instead of holding on to these new ideas and putting them into a new book altogether. Strangely, I gave considerably more thought to some sections of this book after the publication than I had before, particularly in two separate areas. A. The mechanisms by which our brain sees the world as less far less random than it actually is, and b. the fat tails, that wild brand of uncertainty that causes large deviations, 
Rare events explain more and more of the world we live in, but at the same time remain as counterintuitive to us as they were to our ancestors. The second version of this book reflects the author's drift into becoming a little less of a student of uncertainty. We can learn so little about randomness, and more of a researcher into how people are fooled by it. Another phenomenon. The transformation of the author by his own book. As I increasingly started living this book after the initial composition, I found luck in the most unexpected of places. It is as if there were two planets, the one in which we actually live, and the one, considerably more deterministic, on which people are convinced we live. It is as simple as that. Past events will always look less random than they were. It is called the hindsight bias. I would listen to someone's discussion of his own past, realizing that much of what he was saying was just backfit explanations, concocted ex post by his deluded mind. This became at times unbearable. I could feel myself looking at people in the social sciences, particularly conventional economics, and in the investment world, as if they were deranged subjects. Living in the real world may be painful, particularly if one finds statements more informative about the people making them than the intended message. I picked up Newsweek this morning at the dentist's office, and read a journalist's discussion of a prominent business figure. Particularly his ability in timing moves, and realized how I was making a list of the biases in the journalist's mind, rather than getting the intended information in the article itself, which I could not possibly take seriously. Why don't most journalists end up figuring out that they know much less than they think they know? Scientists investigated half a century ago the phenomena of experts not learning about their past failings. You can mispredict everything for all your life, yet think that you will get it right next time. Insecurity and probability. I believe that the principal asset I need to protect and cultivate is my deep-seated intellectual insecurity. My motto is: My principal activity is to tease those who take themselves and the quality of their knowledge too seriously. Cultivating such insecurity in place of intellectual confidence may be a strange aim, and one that is not easy to implement. To do so, we need to purge our minds of the recent tradition of intellectual certainties. A reader turned pen pal made me rediscover the 16th-century French essayist and professional introspector Montaigne. I got sucked into the implications of the difference between Montaigne and Descartes. And how we strayed by following the latter's quest for certitudes. We surely closed our minds by following Descartes' model of formal thinking, rather than Montaigne's brand of vague and informal but critical judgment. Half a millennium later, the severely introspecting and insecure Montaigne stands tall as a role model for the modern thinker. In addition, the man had exceptional courage. It certainly takes bravery. To remain skeptical, it takes inordinate courage to introspect, to confront oneself, to accept one's limitations. Scientists are seeing more and more evidence that we are specifically designed by Mother Nature to fool ourselves. 
There are many intellectual approaches to probability and risk. Probability means slightly different things to people in different disciplines. In this book, it is tenaciously qualitative and literary, as opposed to quantitative and scientific, which explains the warnings against economists and finance professors as they tend to firmly believe that they know something and something useful at that. It is presented as flowing from Hume's problem of induction, or Aristotle's inference to the general, as opposed to the paradigm of the gambling literature. In this book, probability is principally a branch of applied skepticism, not an engineering discipline. In spite of all the self-important mathematical treatment of the subject matter, problems related to the calculus of probability rarely merit to transcend the footnote. How? Probability is not a mere computation of odds on the dice or more complicated variants. It is the acceptance of the lack of certainty in our knowledge and the development of methods for dealing with our ignorance. Outside of textbooks and casinos, probability almost never presents itself as a mathematical problem or a brain teaser. Mother Nature does not tell you how many holes there are on the roulette table, nor does she deliver problems in a textbook way. In the real world, one has to guess the problem more than the solution. In this book, considering that alternative outcomes could have taken place, that the world could have been different, is the core of probabilistic thinking. As a matter of fact, I spent all my career attacking the quantitative use of probability. While chapters 13 and 14, dealing with skepticism and stoicism, are to me the central ideas of the book, most people focused on the examples of miscomputation of probability in chapter 11, clearly and by far the least original chapter of the book, one in which I compressed all the literature on probability biases. In addition, while we may have some understanding of the probabilities in the hard sciences, particularly in physics, we don't have much of a clue in the social sciences like economics, in spite of the fanfares of experts. Vindicating Some Readers I have tried to make the minimum out of my occupation of mathematical trader. The fact that I operate in the markets serves only as an inspiration. It does not make this book, as many thought it was, a guide to market randomness any more than the Iliad should be interpreted as a military instruction manual. Only three out of fourteen chapters have a financial setting. Markets are a mere special case of randomness traps, but they are by far the most interesting as luck plays a very large role in them. This book would have been considerably shorter if I were a taxidermist or a translator of chocolate labels. Furthermore, the kind of luck in finance is of the kind that nobody understands, but most operators think they understand, which provides us a magnification of the biases. I have tried to use my market analogies in an illustrative way, as I would in a dinner conversation with, say, a cardiologist with intellectual curiosity. I used as a model my second-generation friend Jacques Mirab. 
I received large quantities of electronic mail on the first version of the book, which can be an essayist's dream, as such dialectic provides ideal conditions for the rewriting of the second version. I expressed my gratitude by answering, once, each one of them. Some of the answers have been inserted back into the text, in the different chapters. Being often seen as an iconoclast, I was looking forward to getting the angry letters of the type, Who are you to judge Warren Buffett? Or, You are envious of his success. Instead, I was disappointed to see most of the trashing going anonymously to Amazon.com. There is no such thing as bad publicity. Some people manage to promote your work by insulting it. The consolation for the lack of attacks was in the form of letters from people who felt vindicated by the book. The most rewarding letters were the ones from people who did not fare well in life, through no fault of their own, and who used the book as an argument with their spouse to explain that they were less lucky, not less skilled, than their brother-in-law. The most touching letter came from a man in Virginia, who within a period of a few months lost his job, his wife, his fortune, was put under investigation by the redoubtable Securities and Exchange Commission, and progressively felt good for acting stoical. A correspondence with a reader who was hit with a black swan, the unexpected large-impact random event, the loss of a baby, caused me to spend some time dipping into the literature on adaptation after a severe random event, not coincidentally also dominated by Daniel Kahneman, the pioneer of the ideas on irrational behavior under uncertainty. I have to confess that I never felt really particularly directly of service to anyone being a traitor, except myself. It felt elevating and useful being an essayist. All or None A few confusions with the message in this book. Just as our brain does not easily make out probabilistic shades, it goes for the oversimplifying all or none, it was hard to explain that the idea here was that it is more random than we think, rather than it is all random. I had to face the Taleb as a skeptic thinks everything is random and successful people are just lucky. The fooled by randomness symptom even affected a well-publicized Cambridge Union debate. As my argument, most city hotshots are lucky fools, became all city hotshots are lucky fools. Clearly, I lost the debate to the formidable Desmond Fitzgerald in one of the most entertaining discussions in my life. I was even tempted to switch sides. The same delusion of mistaking irreverence for arrogance, as I noticed with my message, makes people confuse skepticism for nihilism. Let me make it clear here. Of course, chance favors the prepared. Hard work, showing up on time, wearing a clean, preferably white, shirt, using deodorant and some such conventional things contribute to success. They are certainly necessary, but may be insufficient as they do not cause success. The same applies to the conventional values of persistence, doggedness, and perseverance. Necessary. Very necessary. One needs to go out and buy a lottery ticket in order to win. Does it mean that the work involved in the trip to the store caused the winning?
Of course, skills count, but they do count less in highly random environments than they do in dentistry. No, I am not saying that what your grandmother told you about the value of work ethics is wrong. Furthermore, as most successes are caused by very few windows of opportunity, failing to grab one can be deadly for one's career. Take your luck. Notice how our brain sometimes gets the arrow of causality backward. Assume that good qualities cause success. Based on that assumption, even though it seems intuitively correct to think so, the fact that every intelligent, hardworking, persevering person becomes successful does not imply that every successful person is necessarily an intelligent, hardworking, persevering person. It is remarkable how such a primitive logical fallacy. Affirming the consequent can be made by otherwise very intelligent people, a point I discuss in this edition as the two systems of reasoning problem. There is a twist in research on success that has found its way into the bookstores under the banner of advice on "These are the millionaires' traits that you need to have if you want to be just like those successful people." One of the authors of the misguided. The millionaire next door, that I discuss in chapter eight, wrote another even more foolish book called *The Millionaire Mind*. He observes that in the representative cohort of more than a thousand millionaires whom he studied, most did not exhibit high intelligence in their childhood, and infers that it is not your endowment that makes you rich, but rather hard work. From this, one can naively infer that chance plays no part in success. My intuition is that if millionaires are close in attributes to the average population, then I would make the more disturbing interpretation that it is because luck played a part. Luck is democratic, and hits everyone regardless of original skills. The author notices variations from the general population in a few traits like tenacity and hard work. Another confusion of the necessary. And the causal, that all millionaires were persistent, hardworking people, does not make persistent hard workers become millionaires. Plenty of unsuccessful entrepreneurs were persistent, hardworking people. In a textbook case of naive empiricism, the author also looked for traits these millionaires had in common, and figured out that they shared a taste for risk taking. Clearly, risk taking is necessary for large success, but. It is also necessary for failure. Had the author done the same study on bankrupt citizens, he would certainly have found a predilection for risk-taking. I was asked to back up the claims in the book with the supply of data: graphs, charts, diagrams, plots, tables, numbers, recommendations, time series, etc., by some readers. And by me too, publishers. Before I was lucky to find Texair. This text is a series of logical thought experiments, not an economics term paper. Logic does not require empirical verification. Again, there is what I call a round-trip fallacy. It is a mistake to use, as journalists and some economists do, statistics without logic. But the reverse does not hold. It is not a mistake to use logic without statistics. If I write that I doubt that my neighbor's success is devoid of some measure, small or large, of luck, 
owing to the randomness of his profession. I do not need to test it. The Russian roulette thought experiment suffices. All I need is to show that there exists an alternative explanation to the theory that he is a genius. My approach is to manufacture a cohort of intellectually challenged persons and show how a small minority can evolve into successful businessmen. But these are the ones who will be visible. I am not saying that Warren Buffett is not skilled, only that a large population of random investors will almost necessarily produce someone with his track records just by luck. Missing a Hoax I was also surprised at the fact that in spite of the book's aggressive warning against media journalism, I was invited to television and radio shows in both North America and Europe, including a hilarious dialogue de sore on a Las Vegas radio station where the interviewer and I were running two parallel conversations. Nobody protected me from myself, and I accepted the interviews. Strangely, one needs to use the press to communicate the message that the press is toxic. I felt like a fraud coming up with vapid sound bites, but had fun at it. It may be that I was invited because the mainstream media interviewers did not read my book or understand the insults. They don't have the time to read books, and the non-profit ones read it too well and felt vindicated by it. I have a few anecdotes. A famous television show was told that this guy Taleb believes that stock analysts are just random forecasters. So they seemed eager to have me present my ideas on the program. However, their condition was that I make three stock recommendations to prove my expertise. I didn't attend and missed the opportunity for a great hoax by discussing three stocks selected randomly and fitting a well-sounded explanation to my selection. On another television show, I mentioned that people think that there is a story when there is none, as I was discussing the random character of the stock market and the backfit logic one always sees in events after the fact. The anchor immediately interjected, There was a story about Cisco this morning. Can you comment on that? The best? When invited to an hour-long discussion on a financial radio show, they had not read Chapter 11, I was told a few minutes before to refrain from discussing the ideas in this book because I was invited to talk about trading and not about randomness. Another hoax opportunity, certainly, but I was too unprepared for it and walked out before the show started. Most journalists do not take things too seriously. After all, this business of journalism is about pure entertainment, not a search for truth particularly when it comes to radio and television. The trick is to stay away from those who do not seem to know that they are just entertainers, like George Will, who will appear in Chapter 2, and actually believe that they are thinkers. Another problem was in the interpretation of the message in the media. This guy Nassim thinks the markets are random, hence they are going lower, which made me the unwilling bearer of catastrophic messages. Black swans, those rare and unexpected deviations, can be both good and bad events. However, media journalism is less standardized than it appears. It attracts a significant segment of thoughtful people who manage to extricate themselves from the commercial soundbite-driven system and truly care about the message, rather than just catching the public's attention.
One naive observation from my conversations with Kojon Namdi, NPR, Robin Lustig, BBC, Robert Scully, PBS, and Brian Lara, WNYC, is that the non-profit journalist is altogether another intellectual breed. Casually, the quality of the discussion correlates inversely with the luxury of the studios. WNYC, where I felt that Brian Lara was making the greatest effort at getting into the arguments, operates out of the shabbiest offices I have seen this side of Kazakhstan. One final comment on the style. I elected to keep the style of this book as idiosyncratic as it was in the first edition. Homo sum, good and bad. I am fallible and see no reason to hide my minor flaws if they are part of my personality, no more than I feel the need to wear a wig when I have my picture taken or borrow someone else's nose when I show my face. Almost all the book editors who read the draft recommended changes at the sentence level to make my style better, and in the structure of the text, in the organization of chapters. I ignored almost all of them, and found out that none of the readers thought them necessary. As a matter of fact, I find that injecting the personality of the author, imperfections included, enlivens the text. Does the book industry suffer from the classical expert problem with the build-up of rules of thumb that do not have empirical validity? More than a hundred thousand readers later, I am discovering that books are not written for book editors. Prologue Mosques in the Clouds This book is about luck, disguised and perceived as non-luck, that is, skills, and more generally, randomness disguised and perceived as non-randomness, that is, determinism. It manifests itself in the shape of the lucky fool, defined as a person who benefited from a disproportionate share of luck, but attributes his success to some other, generally very precise, reason. Such confusion crops up in the most unexpected areas, even science, though not in such an accentuated and obvious manner as it does in the world of business. It is endemic in politics, as it can be encountered in the shape of a country's president, discoursing on the jobs that he created, his recovery, and his predecessor's inflation. We are still very close to our ancestors who roamed the savannah. The formation of our beliefs is fraught with superstitions, even today, I might say especially today. Just as one day some primitive tribesman scratched his nose, saw rain falling, and developed an elaborate method of scratching his nose to bring on the much-needed rain, we link economic prosperity to some rate cut by the Federal Reserve Board, or the success of a company with the appointment of the new president at the helm. Bookstores are full of biographies of successful men and women, presenting their specific explanation on how they made it big in life. We have an expression the right time at the right place, to weaken whatever conclusion can be inferred from them. This confusion strikes people of different persuasions. The literature professor invests a deep meaning into a mere coincidental occurrence of word patterns, while the economist proudly detects regularities and anomalies in data that are plain random. At the cost of appearing biased, 
I have to say that the literary mind can be intentionally prone to the confusion between noise and meaning, that is, between a randomly constructed arrangement and a precisely intended message. However, this causes little harm. Few claim that art is a tool of investigation of the truth, rather than an attempt to escape it or make it more palatable. Symbolism is the child of our inability and unwillingness to accept randomness. We give meaning to all manner of shapes. We detect human figures in ink blots. I saw mosques in the clouds, announced Arthur Rimbaud, the nineteenth-century French symbolic poet. This interpretation took him to poetic Abyssinia in East Africa, where he was brutalized by a Christian Lebanese slave dealer, contracted syphilis, and lost a leg to gangrene. He gave up poetry in disgust at the age of nineteen, and died anonymously in a Marseille hospital ward while still in his thirties. But it was too late. European intellectual life developed what seemed to be an irreversible taste for symbolism. We are still paying its price with psychoanalysis and other fads. Regrettably, some people play the game too seriously. They are paid to read too much into things. All my life, I have suffered the conflict between my love of literature and poetry, and my profound allergy to most teachers of literature and critics. The French thinker and poet Paul Valéry was surprised to listen to a commentary of his poems that found meanings that had until then escaped him. Of course, it was pointed out to him that these were intended by his subconscious. More generally, we underestimate the share of randomness in about everything, a point that may not merit a book, except when it is the specialist who is the fool of all fools. Disturbingly, science has only recently been able to handle randomness. The growth in available information has been exceeded only by the expansion of noise. Probability theory is a young arrival in mathematics. Probability applied to practice is almost non-existent as a discipline. In addition, we seem to have evidence that what is called courage comes from an underestimation of the share of randomness in things, rather than the more noble ability to stick one's neck out for a given belief. In my experience, and in the scientific literature, economic risk-takers are rather the victims of delusions, leading to over-optimism and over-confidence with their. Underestimation of possible adverse outcomes, than the opposite. Their risk-taking is frequently randomness, foolishness. Consider the left and right columns of the Table of Confusion, which I will read in just a moment. The best way to summarize the major thesis of this book is that it addresses situations, many of them tragicomical, where the first item in the left column is mistaken for the one in the right. The subsections also illustrate the key areas of discussion on which this book will be based. The reader may wonder whether the opposite case might not deserve some attention. That is, the situations where non-randomness is mistaken for randomness. Shouldn't we be concerned with situations where patterns and messages may have been ignored? I have two answers. First, I am not overly worried about the existence of undetected patterns. We have been reading lengthy and complex messages, and just about any manifestation of nature that presents jaggedness, such as the palm of a hand, the residues at the bottom of Turkish coffee cups, etc. 
armed with home supercomputers and chained processors, and helped by complexity and chaos theories, the scientists, semi-scientists, and pseudo-scientists will be able to find portents. Second, we need to take into account the costs of mistakes. In my opinion, mistaking the items in the right-hand column from the ones in the left is not as costly an error in the opposite direction. The even popular opinion warns that bad information is worse than no information at all. So here is the table of confusion, presenting the central distinctions used in this book. Under the general category, luck versus skills, randomness versus determinism, probability versus certainty, belief and conjecture versus knowledge and certitude, theory versus reality, anecdote and coincidence versus causality and law, and forecast versus prophecy. Under the market performance category, lucky idiot versus skilled investor, and survivorship bias versus market outperformance. In the finance category, we have volatility versus return or drift, and stochastic variable versus deterministic variable. In the physics and engineering category, noise versus signal. In the literary criticism category, we have none. Literary critics do not seem to have a name for things they do not understand. Versus symbol. In the philosophy of science category, epistemic probability versus physical probability, induction versus deduction, and synthetic proposition versus analytic proposition. And finally, in the general philosophy category, we have contingent versus certain, contingent versus necessary, in the Kripke sense. And finally, contingent versus true in all possible worlds. However interesting these areas could be, their discussion would be a tall order. There is one world in which I believe the habit of mistaking luck for skill is most prevalent and most conspicuous, and that is the world of markets. By luck or misfortune. That is the world in which I have operated most of my adult life. It is what I know best. In addition, economic life presents the best and most entertaining laboratory for the understanding of these differences. For it is in the area of human undertaking where the confusion is greatest, and its effects the most pernicious. For instance, we often have the mistaken impression that a strategy is an excellent strategy. Or an entrepreneur, a person endowed with vision, or a trader, a talented trader, only to realize that 99.9% of their past performance is attributable to chance, and chance alone. Ask a profitable investor to explain the reasons for his success; he will offer some deep and convincing interpretation of the results. Frequently, these delusions are intentional, and deserve to bear the name charlatanism. If there is one cause for this confusion between the left and the right sides of our table of confusion, 
It is our inability to think critically. We may enjoy presenting conjectures as truth. It is our nature. Our mind is not equipped with the adequate machinery to handle probabilities. Such infirmity even strikes the expert, sometimes just the expert. The 19th century cartoon character, pot-bellied bourgeois Monsieur Prudhomme, carried around a large sword with a double intent, primarily to defend the Republic against its enemies, and secondarily to attack it should it stray from its course. In the same manner this book has two purposes, to defend science as a light beam across the noise of randomness, and to attack the scientist when he strays from his course. Most disasters come from the fact that individual scientists do not have an innate understanding of standard error or a clue about critical thinking, and likewise have proved both incapable of dealing with probabilities in the social sciences and incapable of accepting such fact. As a practitioner of uncertainty, I have seen more than my share of snake oil salesmen dressed in the garb of scientists, particularly those operating in economics. The greatest fools of randomness will be found among these. We are flawed beyond repair, at least for this environment. But it is only bad news for those utopians who believe in an idealized humankind. Current thinking presents the two following polarized visions of man, with little shades in between. On the one hand, there is your local college English professor, your great-aunt Irma, who never married and liberally delivers sermons, your How to Reach Happiness in Twenty Steps and How to Become a Better Person in a Week book writer. It is called The Utopian Vision, associated with Rousseau, Godwin, Caritas, Thomas Paine, and conventional normative economists, of the kind to ask you to make rational choices because that is what is deemed good for you, etc. They believe in reason and rationality, that we should overcome cultural impediments on our way to becoming a better human race, thinking we can control our nature at will and transform it by mere edict in order to attain, among other things, happiness and rationality. Basically, this category would include those who think that the cure for obesity is to inform people that they should be healthy. On the other hand, there is the tragic vision of humankind that believes in the existence of inherent limitations and flaws in the way we think and act, and requires an acknowledgment of this fact as a basis for any individual and collective action. This category of people includes Karl Popper, falsificationism and distrust of intellectual answers, actually of anyone who is confident that he knows anything with certainty, Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, suspicion of governments, Adam Smith, intention of man, Herbert Simon, bounded rationality, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, heuristics and biases, the speculator George Soros, etc. The most neglected one is the misunderstood philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce, who was born a hundred years too early. He coined the term scientific fallibilism in opposition to papal infallibility. Needless to say that the ideas of this book fall squarely into the tragic category. We are faulty, and there is no need to bother trying to correct our flaws. We are so defective and so mismatched to our environment that we can just work around these flaws. 
I am convinced that after spending almost all my adult and professional years in a fierce fight between my brain, not fooled by randomness, and my emotions, completely fooled by randomness, in which the only success I've had is in going around my emotions rather than rationalizing them. Perhaps ridding ourselves of our humanity is not in the works. We need wily tricks, not some grandiose moralizing help. As an empiricist, actually a skeptical empiricist, I despise the moralizers beyond anything on this planet. I still wonder why they blindly believe in ineffectual methods. Delivering advice assumes that our cognitive apparatus, rather than our emotional machinery, exerts some meaningful control over our actions. We will see how modern behavioral science shows this to be completely untrue. My colleague, Bob Yeager, he followed the opposite course of mine of moving from philosophy professor to traitor, presents a more potent view of the dichotomy. There are those who think that there are easy, clear-cut answers, and those who don't think that simplification is possible without severe distortion. His hero? Wittgenstein. His villain? Descartes. I am enamored of the difference as I think that the generator of the fooled-by-randomness problem, the false belief in determinism, is also associated with such reduction of the dimensionality of things. As much as you believe in the keep-it-simple-stupid, it is the simplification that is dangerous. This author hates books that can be easily guessed from the table of contents. Not many people read textbooks for pleasure. But a hint of what comes next seems in order. The book is composed of three parts. The first is an introspection into Solon's warning, as his outburst on rare events became my lifelong motto. In it we meditate on visible and invisible histories, and the elusive property of rare events, black swans. The second presents a collection of probability biases I encountered, and suffered from, in my career in randomness, ones that continue to fool me. The third illustrates my personal jousting with my biology, and concludes the book with a presentation of a few practical, wax in my ears, and philosophical, stoicism, aids. Before the Enlightenment and the Age of Rationality, there was in the culture a collection of tricks to deal with our fallibility and reversals of fortunes. The elders can still help us with some of their ruses. Part 1. Solon's Warning. Skewness, Asymmetry, Induction. Croesus king of Lydia, was considered the richest man of his time. To this day, Romance languages use the expression rich as Croesus to describe a person of excessive wealth. He was said to be visited by Solon, the Greek legislator known for his dignity, reserve, moral uprights, humility, frugality, wisdom, intelligence, and courage. Solon did not display the smallest surprise at the wealth and splendor surrounding his host nor the tiniest admiration for their owner. Croesus was so irked by the manifest lack of impression on the part of his illustrious visitor that he attempted to extract from him some acknowledgment. He asked him if he had known a happier man than him. Solon cited the life of a man 
who led a noble existence and died while in battle. Prodded for more, he gave similar examples of heroic but terminated lives, until Croesus, irate, asked him point-blank if he was not to be considered the happiest man of all. Solon answered, The observation of the numerous misfortunes that attend all conditions forbids us to grow insolent upon our present enjoyments, or to admire a man's happiness that may yet, in course of time, suffer change. For the uncertain future has yet to come, with all variety of future, and him only to whom the divinity has guaranteed continued happiness until the end, may we call happy. The modern equivalent has been no less eloquently voiced by the baseball coach Yogi Berra, who seems to have translated Solon's outburst from the pure Attic Greek into no less pure Brooklyn English with, It ain't over until it's over. Or, in a less dignified manner, with, It ain't over until the fat lady sings. In addition, aside from his use of the vernacular, the Yogi Berra quote presents an advantage of being true, while the meeting between Croesus and Solon was one of those historical facts that benefited from the imagination of the chroniclers, as it was chronologically impossible for the two men to have been in the same location. Part one is concerned with the degree to which a situation may yet, in the course of time, suffer change. For we can be tricked by situations involving mostly the activities of the goddess Fortuna, Jupiter's firstborn daughter. Solon was wise enough to get the following point. That which came with the help of luck can be taken away by luck, and often rapidly and unexpectedly at that. The flip side, which deserves to be considered as well, in fact it is even more of our concern, is that things that come with little help from luck are more resistant to randomness. Solon also had the intuition of a problem that has obsessed science for the past three centuries. It is called the problem of induction. I call it in this book the black swan, or the rare event. Solon even understood another linked problem, which I call the skewness issue. It does not matter how frequently someone succeeds if failure is too costly to bear. Yet the story of Croesus has another twist. Having lost a battle to the redoubtable Persian king Cyrus, he was about to be burned alive when he called Solon's name and shouted something like, Solon, you were right! Again, this is legend. Cyrus asked about the nature of such unusual invocations, and he told him about Solon's warning. This impressed Cyrus so much that he decided to spare Croesus' life, as he reflected on the possibilities as far as his own fate was concerned. People were thoughtful at that time. Chapter 1 If you're so rich, why aren't you so smart? An illustration of the effect of randomness on social pecking order and jealousy through two characters of opposite attitudes. On the concealed rare event, how things in modern life may change rather rapidly, except perhaps in dentistry. Nero Tulip Hit by Lightning Nero Tulip became obsessed with trading after witnessing a strange scene one spring day 
as he was visiting the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. A red convertible Porsche, driven at several times the city speed limit, abruptly stopped in front of the entrance, its tires emitting the sound of pigs being slaughtered. A visibly demented athletic man in his thirties, his face flushed red, emerged and ran up the steps as if he were chased by a tiger. He left the car double-parked, its engine running, provoking an angry fanfare of horns. After a long minute, a bored young man clad in a yellow jacket—yellow was the color reserved for clerks—came down the steps, visibly untroubled by the traffic commotion. He drove the car into the underground parking garage, perfunctorily, as if it were his daily chore. That day, Nero Tulip was hit with what the French call a coup de foudre, a sudden, intense, and obsessive infatuation that strikes like lightning. "'This is for me!' he screamed enthusiastically. He could not help comparing the life of a traitor to the alternative lives that could present themselves to him. Academia conjured up the image of a silent university office with rude secretaries. Business, the image of a quiet office staffed with slow thinkers and semi-slow thinkers who expressed themselves in full sentences. Temporary Sanity Unlike a coup de foudre, the infatuation triggered by the Chicago scene has not left him more than a decade and a half after the incident. For Nero swears that no other lawful profession in our times could be as devoid of boredom as that of the traitor. Furthermore, although he has not yet practiced the profession of high-sea piracy, he is now convinced that even that occupation would present more dull moments than that of the traitor. Nero could best be described as someone who randomly, and abruptly, swings between the deportment and speech manners of a church historian and the verbally abusive intensity of a Chicago pit trader. He can commit hundreds of millions of dollars in a transaction without a blink or a shadow of a second thought, yet agonized between two appetizers on the menu, changing his mind back and forth and wearing out the most patient of waiters. Nero holds an undergraduate degree in ancient literature and mathematics from Cambridge University. He enrolled in a Ph.D. program in statistics at the University of Chicago, but, after completing the prerequisite coursework, as well as the bulk of his doctoral research, he switched to the philosophy department. He called the switch a moment of temporary sanity, adding to the consternation of his thesis director, who warned him against philosophers and predicted his return back to the fold. He finished writing his thesis in philosophy, but not in the Derrida continental style of incomprehensible philosophy, that is, incomprehensible to anyone outside of their ranks, like myself. It was quite the opposite— his thesis was on the methodology of statistical inference in its application to the social sciences. In fact, his thesis was indistinguishable from a thesis in mathematical statistics. It was just a bit more thoughtful, and twice as long. It is often said that philosophy cannot feed its man, but that was not the reason Nero left. He left because philosophy cannot entertain its man. At first it started looking futile. He recalled his statistics thesis director's warnings. Then, suddenly, it started to look like work. 
As he became tired of writing papers on some arcane details of his earlier papers, he gave up the academy. The academic debates bored him to tears, particularly when minute points, invisible to the non-initiated, were at stake. Action was what Nero required. The problem, however, was that he selected the academy in the first place, in order to kill what he detected was the flatness and tempered submission of employment life. After witnessing the scene of the trader chased by a tiger, Nero found a trainee spot on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the large exchange where traders transact by shouting and gesticulating frenetically. There he worked for a prestigious but eccentric local who trained him in the Chicago style in return for Nero solving his mathematical equations. The energy in the air proved motivating to Nero. He rapidly graduated to the rank of self-employed trader. Then, when he got tired of standing on his feet in the crowd and straining his vocal cords, he decided to seek employment upstairs, that is, trading from a desk. He moved to the New York area and took a position with an investment house. Nero specialized in quantitative financial products, and when she had an early moment of glory, became famous and in demand. Many investment houses in New York and London flashed huge guaranteed bonuses at him. Nero spent a couple of years shuttling between the two cities, attending important meetings and wearing expensive suits. But soon, Nero went into hiding. He rapidly pulled back to anonymity. The Wall Street stardom track did not quite fit his temperament. To stay a hot trader requires some organizational ambitions and a power hunger that he feels lucky not to possess. He was only in it for the fun, and his idea of fun does not include administrative and managerial work. He is susceptible to conference room boredom and is incapable of talking to businessmen, particularly the run-of-the-mill variety. Nero is allergic to the vocabulary of business talk, not just on plain aesthetic grounds. Phrases like game plan, bottom line, how to get there from here. We provide our clients with solutions. Our mission, and other hackneyed expressions that dominate meetings, lack both the precision and the coloration that he prefers to hear. Whether people populate silence with hollow sentences, or if such meetings present any true merit, he does not know. At any rate, he did not want to be part of it. Indeed, Nero's extensive social life includes almost no business people. But unlike me, I can be extremely humiliating when someone rubs me the wrong way with inelegant pompousness. Nero handles himself with gentle aloofness in these circumstances. So, Nero switched careers to what is called proprietary trading. Traders are set up as independent entities, internal funds with their own allocation of capital. They are left alone to do as they please, provided, of course, that their results satisfy the executives. The name proprietary comes from the fact that they trade the company's own capital. At the end of the year, they receive between 7 and 12 percent of the profits generated. The proprietary trader has all the benefits of self-employment and none of the burdens of running the mundane details of his own business. He can work any hours he likes, travel at a whim, and engage in all manner of personal pursuits. 
It is a paradise for an intellectual like Nero, who dislikes manual work and values unscheduled meditation. He has been doing that for the past ten years, in the employment of two different trading firms. Modus operandi. A word on Nero's methods. He is as conservative a trader as one can be in such a business. In the past, he has had good years and less than good years, but virtually no truly bad years. Over these years, he has slowly built for himself a stable nest egg, thanks to an income ranging between three hundred thousand, and at its peak, two point five million dollars. On average, he manages to accumulate five hundred thousand dollars a year in after-tax money, from an average income of about a million dollars. This goes straight into his savings account. In 1993, he had a bad year and was made to feel uncomfortable in his company. Other traders made out much better, so the capital at his disposal was severely reduced, and he was made to feel undesirable at the institution. He then went to get an identical job. Down to an identically designed workspace, but in a different firm that was friendlier. In the fall of 1994, the traders who had been competing for the Great Performance Award blew up in unison during the worldwide bond market crash that resulted from the random tightening by the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States. They are all currently out of the market, performing a variety of tasks. This business has a high mortality rate. Why isn't Nero more affluent? Because of his trading style, or perhaps his personality. His risk aversion is extreme. Nero's objective is not to maximize his profits so much as it is to avoid having this entertaining machine called trading taken away from him. Blowing up would mean returning to the tedium of the university or the non-trading life. Every time his risks increase. He conjures up the image of the quiet hallway at the university, the long mornings at his desk spent in revising a paper, kept awake by bad coffee. No, he does not want to have to face the solemn university library where he was bored to tears. I am shooting for longevity, he is wont to say. Nero has seen many traders blow up. He does not want to get into that situation. Blow up in the lingo has a precise meaning. It does not just mean to lose money; it means to lose more money than one ever expected, to the point of being thrown out of the business, the equivalent of a doctor losing his license to practice, or a lawyer being disbarred. Nero rapidly exits trades after a predetermined loss. He never sells naked options, a strategy that would leave him exposed to large possible losses. He never puts himself in a situation where he can lose more than, say. One million dollars, regardless of the probability of such an event. That amount has always been variable; it depends on his accumulated profits for the year. This risk aversion prevented him from making as much money as the other traders on Wall Street, who are often called masters of the universe. The firms he has worked for generally allocate more money to traders with a different style from Nero, like John, whom we will encounter soon. Nero's temperament is such that he does not mind losing small change. I love taking small losses, he says. I just need my winners to be large. In no circumstances does he want to be exposed to those rare events, 
like panics or sudden crashes, that wipe a trader out in a flash. To the contrary, he wants to benefit from them. When people ask him why he does not hold on to losers, he invariably answers that he was trained by the most chicken of them all, the Chicago trader Stevo, who taught him the business. This is not true. The real reason is his training in probability, and his innate skepticism. There is another reason why Nero is not as rich as others in his situation. His skepticism does not allow him to invest any of his own funds outside of treasury bonds. He therefore missed out on the great bull market. The reason he offers is that it could have turned out to be a bear market and a trap. Nero harbors a deep suspicion that the stock market is some form of an investment scam, and cannot bring himself to own a stock. The difference with people around him, who were enriched by the stock market, was that he was cash flow rich, but his assets did not inflate at all along with the rest of the world. His treasury bonds hardly changed in value. He contrasts himself with one of those startup technology companies that were massively cash flow negative, but for which the hordes developed some infatuation. This allowed the owners to become rich from their stock valuation, and thus dependent on the randomness of the market's election of the winner. The difference with his friends of the investing variety is that he did not depend on the bull market, and accordingly does not have to worry about a bear market at all. His net worth is not a function of the investment of his savings. He does not want to depend on his investments, but on his cash earnings for his enrichment. He takes not an inch of risk with his savings, which he invests in the safest possible vehicles. Treasury bonds are safe; they are issued by the United States government, and governments can hardly go bankrupt, since they can freely print their own currency to pay back their obligation. No work ethics. Today, at thirty-nine, after fourteen years in the business, he can consider himself comfortably settled. His personal portfolio contains several million dollars in medium maturity treasury bonds, enough to eliminate any worry about the future. What he likes most about proprietary trading is that it requires considerably less time than other high-paying professions. In other words, it is perfectly compatible with his non-middle-class work ethic. Trading forces someone to think hard. Those who merely work hard generally lose their focus and intellectual energy. In addition, they end up drowning in randomness. Work ethics, Nero believes, draw people to focus on noise rather than the signal. This free time has allowed him to carry on a variety of personal interests. As Nero reads voraciously and spends considerable time in the gym and museums, he cannot have a lawyer's or a doctor's schedule. Nero found the time to go back to the statistics department where he started his doctoral studies, and finished the. Harder science doctorate in statistics, by rewriting his thesis in more concise terms. Nero now teaches once a year a half semester seminar called "History of Probabilistic Thinking" in the mathematics department of New York University, a class of great originality that draws excellent graduate students. He has saved enough to be able to maintain his lifestyle in the future, and has contingency plans, perhaps, to retire into writing popular essays. Of the scientific literary variety, with themes revolving around probability and indeterminism, but only if some event in the future causes the markets to shut down.
Nero believes that risk-conscious hard work and discipline can lead someone to achieve a comfortable life with a very high probability. Beyond that, it is all randomness, either by taking enormous and unconscious risks or by being extraordinarily lucky. Mild success can be explainable by skills and labor. Wild success is attributable to variance. There are always secrets. Nero's probabilistic introspection may have been helped out by a dramatic event in his life, one that he kept to himself. A penetrating observer might detect in Nero a measure of suspicious exuberance, an unnatural drive. For his life is not as crystalline as it may seem. Nero harbors a secret, one that will be discussed in time. John, the high-yield trader. Through most of the 1990s, across the street from Nero's house, stood John's, a much larger one. John was a high-yield trader, but he was not a trader in the style of Nero. A brief professional conversation with him would have revealed that he presented the intellectual depth and sharpness of mind of an aerobics instructor, though not the physique. A purblind man could not have seen that John had been doing markedly better than Nero, or at least felt compelled to show it. He parked two top-of-the-line German cars in his driveway, his and hers, in addition to two convertibles, one of which was a collectible Ferrari, while Nero had been driving the same VW Cabriolet for almost a decade, and still does. The wives of John and Nero were acquaintances of the health club type, but Nero's wife felt extremely uncomfortable in the company of John's. She felt that the lady was not merely trying to impress her, but was treating her like someone inferior. While Nero had become inured to the sight of traders getting rich, and trying too hard to become sophisticated by turning into wine collectors and opera lovers, his wife had rarely encountered repressed new wealth. The type of people who felt the sting of indigence at some point in their lives and want to get even by exhibiting their wares— the only dark side of being a trader, Nero often says, is the sight of money being showered on unprepared people who are suddenly taught that Vivaldi's Four Seasons is refined music. But it was hard for his spouse to be exposed almost daily to the neighbor who kept boasting of the new decorator they just hired. John and his wife were not the least uncomfortable with the fact that their library came with the leather-bound books— her health club reading was limited to People magazine, but her shelves included a selection of untouched books by dead American authors. She also kept discussing unpronounceable, exotic locations where they would repair during their vacations without so much as knowing the smallest thing about the places. She would have been hard to explain on which continent the Seychelles Islands are located. Nero's wife is all too human, although she kept telling herself that she did not want to be in the shoes of John's wife, she felt as if she had been somewhat swamped in the competition of life. Somehow words and reason became ineffectual in front of an oversized diamond, a monstrous house, and a sports car collection. An Overpaid Hick Nero also suffered the same ambitious feeling toward his neighbors. He was quite contemptuous of John, who represented about everything he was not, and does not want to be, 
but there was the social pressure that was starting to weigh on him. In addition, he too would have liked to have sampled such excessive wealth. Intellectual contempt does not control personal envy. That house across the street kept getting bigger, with addition after addition, and Nero's discomfort kept a pace. While Nero had succeeded beyond his wildest dreams, both personally and intellectually, he was starting to consider himself as having missed a chance somewhere. In the pecking order of Wall Street, the arrival of such types as John had caused him to be a significant trader no longer. But while he used to not care about this, John, and his house and his cars, had started to gnaw away at him. All would have been well if Nero had not had that stupid large house across the street judging him with a superficial standard every morning. Was it the animal pecking order at play, with John's house size making Nero a beta male? Even worse, John was about five years his junior, and despite a shorter career, was making at least ten times his income. When they used to run into each other, Nero had a clear feeling that John tried to put him down, with barely detectable but no less potent signs of condescension. Some days, John ignored him completely. Had John been a remote character, one Nero could only read about in the papers, the situation would have been different. But there John was, in flesh and bones, and he was his neighbor. The mistake Nero made was to start talking to him, as the rule of pecking order immediately emerged. Nero tried to soothe his discomfort by recalling the behavior of Swan, the character in Proust's In Search of Time Lost, a refined art dealer and man of leisure who was at ease with such men as his personal friend, the then Prince of Wales, but acted like he had to prove something in the presence of the middle class. It was much easier for Swan to mix with the aristocratic and well-established set of Germont than it was with the social climbing one of the Vetterines, no doubt because he was far more confident in their presence. Likewise, Nero can exact some form of respect from prestigious and prominent people. He regularly takes long meditative walks in Paris and Venice with an erudite Nobel Prize-caliber scientist, the kind of person who no longer has to prove anything, who actively seeks his conversation. A very famous billionaire speculator calls him regularly to ask him his opinion on the valuation of some derivative securities. But there he was, obsessively trying to gain the respect of some overpaid hick with a cheap, new joysy accent. Had I been in Nero's shoes, I would have paraded some of my scorn to John with the use of body language. But again, Nero is a nice person. Clearly, John was not as well-educated, well-bred, physically fit, or perceived as being as intelligent as Nero. But that was not all. He was not even as street-smart as him. Nero has met true street-smart people in the pits of Chicago, who exhibit a rapidity of thinking that he could not detect in John. Nero was convinced that the man was a confident, shallow thinker, who had done well because he never made an allowance for his vulnerability. But Nero could not, at times, repress his envy. He wondered whether it was an objective evaluation of John, or if it was his feelings of being slighted that led him to such an assessment of John. Perhaps it was Nero who was not quite the best traitor. Maybe, if he had pushed himself harder or had sought the right opportunity, instead of thinking, 
writing articles, and reading complicated papers. Perhaps he should have been involved in the high-yield business, where he would have shined among those shallow thinkers like John. So Nero tried to soothe his jealousy by investigating the rules of pecking order. Psychologists have shown that most people prefer to make seventy thousand dollars when others around them are making sixty thousand, than to make eighty thousand when others around them are making ninety thousand. Economics, schmeconomics, it is all pecking order. He thought. No such analysis could prevent him from assessing his condition in an absolute rather than a relative way. With John, Nero felt that, for all his intellectual training, he was just another one of those who would prefer to make less money, provided others made even less. Nero thought that there was at least a hint to support the idea of John being merely lucky. In other words, Nero, after all, might not need to move away from. His neighbor's starter palazzo. There was hope that John would meet his undoing, for John seemed unaware of one large hidden risk he was taking—the risk of blowing up, a risk he could not see because he had too short an experience of the market, but also because he was not thoughtful enough to study history. How could John, with his coarse mind, otherwise be making so much money? This business of junk bonds depends on some knowledge of the odds, a calculation of the probability of the rare or random events. What do such fools know about odds? These traders use quantitative tools that give them the odds, and Nero disagrees with the methods used. This high-yield market resembles a nap on a railway track. One afternoon, the surprise train would run you over. You make money every month for a long time, then lose a multiple of your cumulative performance in a few hours. He has seen it with options sellers, in 1987, 1989, 1992, and 1998. One day they are taken off the exchange floors, accompanied by oversized security men, and nobody ever sees them again. The big house is simply alone. John might end up as a luxury car salesman somewhere in New Jersey. Selling to the new, newly rich, who no doubt would feel comfortable in his presence. Nero cannot blow up. His less oversized abode, with its four thousand books, is his own. No market event can take it away from him. Every one of his losses is limited. His trader's dignity will never, never be threatened. John, for his part, thought of Nero as a loser. And a snobbish, overeducated loser at that. Nero was involved in a mature business. He believed that he was way over the hill. These prop traders are dying, he used to say. They think they're smarter than everybody else, but they are passe. The red hot summer. Finally, in September 1998, Nero was vindicated. One morning, while leaving to go to work, he saw John in his front yard, unusually smoking a cigarette. He was not wearing a business suit. He looked humble. His customary swagger was gone. Nero immediately knew that John had been fired. What he did not expect was that John also lost almost everything he had. We will see more details of John's losses in Chapter Five. Nero felt ashamed of his feelings of Schadenfreude, 
the joy humans can experience upon their rivals' misfortunes. But he could not repress it. Aside from being unchivalrous, it was said to bring bad luck. Nero is weakly superstitious. But in this case, Nero's merriment did not come from the fact that John went back to his place in life, so much as it was from the fact that Nero's methods, beliefs, and track record had suddenly gained incredibility. Nero would be able to raise public money on his track record precisely because such a thing could not possibly happen to him. A repetition of such an event would pay off massively for him. Part of Nero's elation also came from the fact that he felt proud of his sticking to his strategy for so long, in spite of the pressure to be the alpha male. It was also because he would no longer question his trading style when others were getting rich because they misunderstood the structure of randomness and market cycles.